If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. CeraVe Facial Moisturizers with SPF protect skin against damaging UV rays and continuously deliver three essential ceramides to help restore skin's protective barrier so it can lock in moisture. Non-greasy, fragrance-free, and won't clog pores? With CeraVe, skin feels hydrated and looks healthy all day. CeraVe Facial Moisturizers with SPF from the number one dermatologist-recommended facial moisturizer brand. Hello, I'm Rob Attar and this is the second History Extra podcast for July 2012. Coming up in this week's episode, we have... It was happening in fairly open keys and it was certainly happening with the knowledge of the customs officers. That was Evan Jones on smuggling in the Tudor era. Charles's England was a very divided society and the confrontation and clashes over uh, what people did with their free time on Sundays was, was a very important part of that. And that was Alistair Dougal on why sports split society in the 17th century. This podcast is brought to you from the team behind BBC History magazine, which is Britain's best-selling history magazine. You can find it in all good news agents and on subscription. And there are more details of our latest issue and back issues and subscription deals on our website, which, as you may well know by now, is historyextra.com. We are also, of course, available digitally nowadays. You can purchase our Kindle edition direct from the Amazon website, and our iPad edition is available from the Apple newsstand. And if you'd like to find out more about our iPad edition, please visit historyextra.com forward slash iPad. And as usual, we can be found on facebook.com forward slash history extra and twitter.com forward slash history extra. So let's begin with a spot of smuggling. Evan Jones, senior lecturer in economic and social history at the University of Bristol, has recently published a book on smuggling in the city during the Tudor period. The magazine's section editor, Charlotte Hodgman, caught up with Evan to find out how the trade in illicit goods boomed during the 16th century. When we think of smuggling, most of us tend to think of boats landing on deserted beaches in the dead of night, as tended to be the case in Georgian times. But what was different about smuggling in the Tudor area? Well, in many ways, it was much more open. I mean, it was practiced by sort of major merchants rather than sort of a specialist criminal underclass. Uh, and it was able to carry on that way because it was done largely with the complicity of customs officers. So it was, it was much more open. It was less hidden in a way, mm. um, probably less violent, uh, much more like sort of white-collar fraud or you know, even some white rough fraud, you might call it, <laughs> as it's the uh, 16th century. What does te- smuggling tell us about Tudor society in, in general? Well, I think one of the things it tells us, the fact how prevalent it was, mm. shows just how weak the central state was. I and mean, I think we tend to think of sort of Tudor kings and queens like Elizabeth and Henry VIII as being great and all-powerful monarchs. But really the Tudor state was... Was, was very weak. It only had about 
relied on revenues equivalent to perhaps one two percent of GDP, mm. relative to over forty percent today, and that meant the actual reach of a of a crown was was very limited. It relied very much on local elites to to work, and if those local elites were corrupt and conspiring against it, there was actually very little the crown could do. And was that quite common? Well, yes. I mean, smuggling was clearly very common, I and mean, I've mostly worked on Bristol. But uh, the types of fraud which uh, I see happening happening clearly around the coast of England. I mean, you sort of pick up sort of stray references or complaints and petitions and so on. It's, it's clear that very similar sorts of activities were happening all over the place. How was smuggling dealt with if if the corruption was so high up in the chain? With difficulty. I mean, it was, I mean, in theory, the way the system worked was mm. that you employed customs officers, as you do today, who, who police the ports, collect revenue and prevent people from lading or unlading goods illicitly. Um, the difficulty was that if those customs officials are corrupt, if they are venal, if they take money payments to look the other way, then it's it's quite difficult to, you know, to, to know where you go from there. And you might say, well, the answer is to appoint honest customs officers and the Crown, you know, they did figure that out. But the trouble was that the way even the appointment of customs officers worked is that it really militated against the appointment of honest men. I mean, this is because to get become made a customs officer, you actually had to buy your post from the Lord Treasurer. Uh, yeah. So, uh, uh, and you, and, and and a post is treated as a saleable commodity. Once yeah. you've used it, you can sell it on to somebody else. But if it, even if you weren't able to do that, that you actually had to buy your post from a Lord Treasurer, um, if it was like a vacant post, and um, you know, basically the Lord Treasurer clearly seemed to have been prepared to accept, you know, those people who paid them the most money for it. Mm. Uh, I mean, one really good example from Bristol in the 1590s concerns. Uh, the searcher ship of Bristol. This is a kind of the main person who's responsible for trying to stop ships from being laded or unladed illicitly. Mm. And uh, there's an application from a noted Bristol privateer, in fact, who wants to be made searcher of Bristol. He writes to uh, Lord Burley, uh, the Lord Treasurer, but who's also, I mean, everyone knows Burley, he's, he's Elizabeth's main man, mm. he's the chief minister in the realm. And um, he offers him £300 to, to, to make him the post. Now, this is at a time when an ordinary man mm. will be earning about £10 a year. It's a lot of money. It's a huge amount of a year. I mean, relative to incomes, it'd be maybe three quarters of a million pounds in today's oh. money. And that's for a position that has almost no formal wages or salary, and which you, from from the small wages and salary you have, you get, you have to pay for uh, the various clerks and deputies and even the customs cutter. Mm. But basically, what it means is that the only way you could actually make this post pay at that sort of price would be if you're corrupt, if you're actually going to be in cahoots with the merchants and um, allow them to, you know, take bribes for allowing goods to pass. So that was the attraction of the role? Well, that was the attraction of the role. That's the only way... I mean, it wasn't just that was an extra benefit. I mean, the only if you're having to pay this much money for an office, mm. only corrupt men would, 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 would really be likely to apply for it or have any chance of getting it. And, uh, you know, the people who ultimately were getting rich were Elizabeth's chief ministers yeah. and there's one complaint for instance in the um by sir walter raleigh in um the early 17th century where he claims that lord burley sir francis walsingham and um, De- um dudley were who, who three elizabeth's three chief ministers mm. were all quote unquote pensioners under the under the um the customer of london there was a guy called thomas smith so what this means is that uh, the customer of London is paying these these three most powerful politicians in the country an annual fee to retain his position. Uh, okay. Okay. 
were the customs officers quite popular with smugglers then? Because in, in your feature you mentioned that there was quite a lot of violence sometimes towards the customs officers. Well, is this the case? or um, You sometimes get violence. On the whole, though, it seems to be handled in a fairly sort of, sort of gentlemanly way. I mean, the key thing for the merchants, say the merchants of Bristol is to use their uh, their influence to try to get the right customs officer appointed. Right, okay. And from their point of view, the right ones are going to be ones who are going to be favourable to them, ones yeah. who are in their pocket. And they spend, you know, quite a lot of time and effort trying to make sure these customs officers remain favourable to them. I mean, there's one example, uh, John Smith at Bristol, who's a powerful Bristol, the richest, most powerful merchant in the 1540s, 1550s. Um, and he has a particular relationship with um, one of the Bristol customs officers, whereby the customs officer has actually started moving into the wine trade. He's a, mm. sort of a retail wine merchant. But Smith provides him with lots of wine on credit. I mean, again, it's huge amounts of money. It's um, at that time, I think it's about three, four hundred pounds. Sometimes he gets into debt with, with Smith. So there's a clear conflict of interest here. Yeah. That the customs officer knows that if he goes and searches Smith's ship and sees his goods, then any time he wants, Smith can actually reclaim his credit and say, <laughs> OK, <laughs> and actually potentially yeah. get him thrown into debtor's prison for, yeah. uh, you know, for not paying. Because his, his credit terms always, he's very generous with his credit terms. He doesn't charge any interest. But he does say in his credit terms that the money is to be paid, quote, at all times. That means that, you know, Smith can claim his money back whenever he wants. So he's got basically this customs officer, who's the key man yeah. as far as he's concerned, um you know, sort of by the year. What were the types of goods that were being smuggled? Early on, um, I mean, it's a large well, sort of smuggling trade, which I'm looking at, it seems to develop from about the 1520s. Mm-hmm. Early on, it's, it's mostly the export of foodstuffs. Now, this is because, although formal customs duties are quite low, um, from about the 1520s, the Crown gets very concerned that it's uh, inflation means that its ability to raise revenue from from overseas trade is actually not keeping up with inflation, and, and the crown starts coming up with all sorts of wheezes to try to get more money out of merchants. And one of the things it does, it can't, it can't raise customs revenue because it has to go to Parliament for that, and Parliament will always say no. Mm. So what it does, it uses its prerogative right to regulate trade, to to extract money from merchants. So what it does, for instance, it says. We prohibit the export of all foodstuffs, and they, the nominal reason for this is they're concerned about food price rises mm-hmm. at home. But they say we pro- prohibit the export of foodstuffs. But if you want, you can then buy a license off us, which will allow you to export these goods anyway. Okay. So that's that's about the crown using its power to control cases. Yeah. Okay, so you first of all ban it, and then you offer licenses. But these licenses are very expensive. They they can add 60 percent to the to the cost of a good, so equivalent to a sixty percent mm-hmm. tax or VAT, if you like. Um, and that creates an incentive for merchants to smuggle the goods instead. So you start off really in the 15, well, as early as 1516 with a, a real incentive to smuggle foodstuffs. Yeah. But then later on, say in 1538, you start getting um, the ground does the same thing with exports of leather goods and leather, which is a major export item. Uh, so again, there's incentives to smuggle that. And then really finally in about 1558, um, in Queen Mary's reign, a series of, well, two, two major new impositions are put on. These are sort of extra parliamentary taxes, yeah. which are levied on the import of wine and the export of broadcloth. And these are, this is the most important English import and the most important export. Yeah. And, you know, the duty on wine, for instance, increases 1,700% in a single year. So it goes up from it being <laughs> yeah. equivalent to a 2% tax to a, about, a, about a 40% tax. Mm. 
and um, suddenly again therefore it becomes worth smuggling wine and so merchants do and if you look at say bristol customs accounts of that period you'll find imports of wine or declared imports of wine suddenly falling by about two-thirds but what's kind of clearly happening is that merchants are actually just smuggling most of their wine now do you think bristol is typical of the rest of the country in, in terms of its smuggling activity Bristol is particularly well documented, which is why I worked on it, in particular because of a survival of private work records, records of smugglers who were never really caught, but it's their own activities. But no, I don't think it's unusual. I mean, mean, Bristol was the second and most important realm in the country at this time. But, you know, the biggest port is by far is is London. Mm -hmm. And there's certainly evidence of various types of illicit activity going on in London. can also see activity in other places in the southwest, um, in Southampton, in London, I would say in King's Lynn, um, in Hull. I mean, it's, it's clearly go, going on around the country. I mean, it's, it's the same. I mean, it, it varies from port to port. Yeah. I mean, different ports have different goods, slightly different trades. Things, some things might help them to do fraud one way or another. But, you know, the basic patterns seem to be pretty much the same throughout um you know, throughout this period. And the actual kind of action of, of smuggling the goods um, in, was that kind of done secretly? It sounds like it was all quite open. Um, was that actually the case? Typically where it has, I'm say in Bristol, mm. is that, uh, I mean, Bristol is six miles up the River Avon from, from the Seven Estuary. Yeah. And typically what would happen is that a ship, say, which is going to engage in export smuggling, would go to a customs house, which is a, in, in the centre of Bristol, declare some of it, it, it's the goods which it's going to declare. Mm. Then the ship would sail down river to Avonmouth mm. uh, into the River Severn. And then often they would wait there, sometimes taking on extra crew and cargo, well, not cargo, extra crew and supplies. And during that period, the, um, say, a Bristol merchant would send uh, a rider up to upriver warehouses at places like Newnham, uh, Gatcombe, Littleton, up, up towards Gloucester. Mm. And um, the, then they would have their supplies of goods like grain and leather dispatched on, on river barges. They'd come down the river and rendezvous with a ship, they'd lay the, the goods on board and they'd sail off. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't happening directly under the eyes of people, but and sometimes it clearly did happen at night. But on mm-hmm. the other hand, it was happening in fairly open keys and it was yeah. certainly happening with the knowledge of the customs officers but then they paid the customs officers not just to look the other way but actually often protect their ships from other people who might come and like sort of mm. common informers who might come and try to seize the goods and what happened to those people who were caught smuggling to be honest really not a lot they were even if even when people are caught, usually the maximum penalty which they might be subject to is that the, the goods will be seized mm. and they'll be declared forfeit by the Crown. In practice, the merchants have loads and loads of different games they can play to try to minimise their losses. Um, first of all, often the customs officers, if they've been if information's been reported to them, will will simply you know tell the merchant that they're going to come and search for ships so the ship can try to sail off first. Okay. If for some reason it looks like that someone is going to seize a common informer, maybe has come by and they want to they, they, they want to seize the ship, what the merchants will often do is get a friend to go and arrest the ship first. Right. And this might seem like a really odd thing to do, <laughs> but what you do is you get your uh, friend to come along, arrest the ship in the name of the king because it's got it's doing something illicit. Mm. And once you've done that, that means that nobody else can come and arrest the ship because it's already been arrested once. 
then your friend goes and initiates an action in the Exchequer Court in London, which is essentially a private prosecution, reporting some form of nonsensical illicit activity on the ship. Yeah. The ship, the, the goods then go into sort of, uh, the, the ship will then be prosecuted and then a friend will go and withdraw the charge or allow it to be disproved and say, oh, yes, I was wrong. It was, uh, and, and then at that point, at that point, the case ends. Okay. And, and the vast majority of cases which go before the Exchequer either end, either because they're abandoned by, by the informant um, or some other party or, you know, the goods gets seem probably get valued for a tiny proportion of their, their true value. Mm. Because another thing which well, merchants will do is that even if goods are seized, they will then say, um, actually, the seized goods are worth much more than they actually really are worth. So, I mean, and I have one good example of a, a Bristol ship, which gets valued um, at £42 uh, when it is seized. Um, but then, by chance, the, the, the merchant, who is also the MP for Bristol, um, dies. Uh, this is in 15. 58. Uh, he dies probably of flu influenza. It's a big influenza outbreak at the time. He dies. Um, and a probate inventory is created, which actually, a probate inventory is, is written just a couple of days after the, um, the official government inventory takes place. Mm-hmm. And that makes it clear the ship is actually worth £133 rather than £42. But the merchant, uh, or the, the, yeah, it's the executive to, to the merchant, had played various games to make sure that it was undervalued in the books. Okay, all right. So there's no evidence of anyone actually being sort of put in prison or anything like that? Almost never do people actually get put in prison uh, or anything, you know, really. So I say really the worst thing that's likely to happen is is for forfeiture of your goods. But even there, the merchants can... I mean, one of the problems with this system of private prosecution mm. is that informers had an incentive to seize a ship because they were allowed to have 50% proceeds of a, of a seizure but that still means that in the very worst case scenario what a merchant can do if, if goods are seized by a common informer which occasionally happens um, then they can go to the informer and offer them a bribe of say 50% or 51% to withdraw the action and then they'll, they'll do so so almost the worst thing that's likely ever to happen is that, is, is that half the value of the goods uh, will, be, will be declared and there's all sorts of ways in which if once you've got a private system of prosecution there's all sorts of ways in which that can be open to abuse and mm. you know got the records to show that merchants abuse it all the time yeah i mean one of the one of the stories in your feature that i liked was one of the smugglers actually became mayor of mayor of somebody do you want to tell us a little bit about about him well they all became oh, <laughs> okay. it's, it's not unusual is it in i mean in um I mean, that particular instance, I think, related to Francis Shaxton, yeah, who was a yeah. uh, smuggler in, in King's Lynn, um, who then, even after being, in a fairly unusual case, even after being caught and prosecuted and ended up having to admit to various types of illicit activity. Yes, he was, mayor, he, mm. he was made mayor of King's Lynn in about, I think it was 1560. But if I look at, say, my merchants in Bristol, I mean, using yeah. the account books of these merchants who are also smugglers... Um, I was able to identify 15 merchants who were um, engaged in major smuggling activities in the city. 
of those, at least 12 of them, I think, were served as mayors, sheriffs or MPs of a city of mm. Bristol at some point or another. Yeah. Uh, some of them were all three posts at different times. Mm. Um, one was a chamberlain of a city, another was another was the treasurer of a Royal Navy. Um, so <laughs> these, are, these are very powerful, well-connected men. Yeah. I mean, it's, this is the sort of people we're dealing with. Not They're not fly-by-night cowboys. Mm. I mean, John Smith used his fortune to established an estate outside of uh, Bristol, the Ashton Court estate, which is, and his family continued to be one of the senior sort of gentry families around the Bristol region until the mid 20th century. That was Evan Jones of the University of Bristol. You can read Evan's feature on Tudor smuggling in our July issue. Evan's book, Inside the Illicit Economy, Reconstructing the Smugglers' Trade of 16th Century Bristol, has recently been published by Ashgate. Alistair Dougal is author of The Devil's Book, Charles I, The Book of Sports and Puritanism in Tudor and Early Stuart England, which is published by the University of Exeter Press. His book explores how sport and puritanism clashed in the run-up to the Civil War, and he's written a piece about that in the July issue of BBC History magazine. The magazine's publisher and former editor, Dave Musgrove, spoke to him recently and began by asking how important sport was in the 17th century. It had long been an important part of English society, going right back to the early medieval period, um, because Sunday, holy days as well, were the only opportunities most people had for any time of leisure, and so they took uh, full advantage of that. So after after they'd been to church, uh, the church service, um, that was an opportunity then to dance, drink, and make merry, and that included playing all sorts of uh, different sports, so wrestling, running, all, all sorts of things. Um, and it was very much an integral part of, of English life, and that was still the case in the 17th century, although in parts of the country it had declined, and there were um, reasons for that, religious reasons, but also reasons, concerns over order and, 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 and disorder. Um, but for many people, uh, and, and in fact in the 17th century in many ways, for many people where, where these sports were still current, it was even more important because with the um, post-Reformation England, many of the holy days uh, no longer existed. They'd, they'd been reduced in number. So Sunday was very much the day of leisure, the one opportunity to have a good time, basically. Mm. So yeah, so I mean, the Reformation is clearly an important marker here, which we perhaps should mention. So that um, fundamentally changed the landscape of, yeah. of, of English British society. Uh, well, English in this, in this respect, um, and that would have been uh, a hundred years or so before our, our our story takes off. So how does the um, uh, how does sport differ between? the period before the Reformation, the period after the Reformation? That's a good question. I don't think, I think in those areas where people were, were still practicing their sports on Sunday, I don't think it had changed at all. I think um, if you look at what people were enjoying and playing in the 17th century before the English Civil War, uh, it was very much the same as they'd been playing and enjoying in the medieval period. Um, archery was, was what the um, authorities wanted to uh, the men of England to be doing after church on Sundays because traditionally um, th that you know that was obviously to keep them fit for warfare but also um, the longbow um, was very important in terms of English history you know Cressy, Agincourt and all this sort of thing. By the 17th century of course that mattered far less I mean they were using muskets and uh, and guns and and cannon um, so actually in real terms archery didn't matter that that much um, um, but because of the myths surrounding archery and, and England's history it was still regarded as important. Um, 
But the authorities always found it difficult to actually get men just to play archery because it was an opportunity to do lots of other things. So they, they played so many other, other sports. And those hadn't really changed. So you get people um, you know, vaulting, sort of jumping over, often a horse, but jumping on or over a, a, an object. Uh, dancing, and that's mixed dancing, men and women. Um, and uh, wrestling was very popular. Also, ones which the which were meant to be legal, um, such as on, on Sundays anyway, such as bull and bear baitings, uh, bowling, uh, which might seem odd uh, for um, people today that the authorities didn't want the ordinary people to to uh, indulge in, indulge in bowling. Uh, but that's because so many of these sports, and bowling is one of them, uh, were um, occasions of gambling that people gamble on. You know, who who was going to. To, to win and the authorities were very worried that people would, um, if they lost heavily, would then steal from their masters and so on. Um, but the, the, the sports were played in the 17th century hadn't really, hadn't really changed. What had changed was the attitudes to the, the, the idea of um, people playing sports on, on Sundays, uh, either for religious uh, reasons or for concern about order. Okay. So we, we, just in, ter in terms of the, of the word sport, we're sort of bandying that about here. And, and is, it, is it in any way uh, the same word as we would recognise today? Uh, not in the same way, I think, in the sense that it's, uh, you know, there wouldn't be so many rules. And, and um, a lot of the games would be recognisable. I mean, there were early forms of, I mean, some early forms of cricket. Um, uh, there were various things that they would call collectively club ball, but uh, sports in involving um, hitting a ball with a bat or, or a club. Uh, and stool ball was another uh, early form of crit cric uh, cricket. Um, also, cambook was an early form of, of golf. But um, football, I mean, we'd recognise it in the sense it was kicking a ball around or a bladder, you know, um, um, uh, uh, around, but it was very, very different because you, you didn't, teams of. Um, uh, well, there wasn't any particular team of any particular size. It could involve um, it could involve uh, uh, lads um, playing football who were in the same village, or it could uh, be a match against another village. In which case, it could be played over several fields and and very few rules, very um, uh, hard hitting, lots of injuries and fatalities as well. So we recognisable in the sense it's it's uh, lads kicking a ball around, but not recognisable in terms of uh, no fixed rules. Um, and it was just a question of uh, who got the ball. Um, to a particular target first. And, and was there ever any, like, it was never organised in any way, I presume, you know, uh, would, uh, you, you mentioned like a village might play another village, well, how, how would that have been structured? Would, would, would the local village elders have said, right, they, they we're going to have a game? They would have agreed, that? they would have agreed that, that, that on this particular, and it might well be, um, Show Tuesday actually, it wasn't always Sunday, Show Tuesday was a, a, a typical day when they, uh, when the, the tradition they would play football. Um, so they would agree that we're going to hold a match um, Again, against another team. There were organised games, um, and one such is, is the Cotswold Olympics, which was started off by Robert Dover, probably in 1612. But the Cotswold Olympics is unusual in that, but that, that was an organised annual event where there were particular games, particular rules, um, a race might be started off. They, they built a temporary castle, wooden castle, um, uh, which was known as Dover's Castle after the uh, Robert Dover, who started the games, uh, and uh, the uh, cannon would be fired from these, uh, uh, this castle to to signify the start of a race and so on. So they 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 were organised. But your typical um, uh, sport or recreations, uh, sports and pastimes played on Sundays in a, in a parish. There weren't there weren't uh, often many many rules as such. Tell, tell me more about the, the Cotswold Olympics then. So, is this the first instance of something being called Olympics? 
subsequent to the ancient Olympics? As far as I'm aware, yes, and certainly uh, certainly in this country, yeah. uh, and I think actually uh, anywhere in, in the world after the um, the Greek, uh, ancient Greek Olympics. Um, it was started off, as I say, probably in 1612. We're not exactly sure. It might have been a little earlier than that, but probably 1612. And they probably took the place of some traditional um, ale, church ale, um, uh, which, which most parishes would hold a, an ale or a wake of some kind. So it was an opportunity just to get together and, and, uh, and drink and often raise money for the church or something, but then play sports. Uh, and Robert Dover, he was a, um, a lawyer. Um, in uh, lived near Chipping uh, Camden, which is the site of the games, and um, he possibly because he wanted to keep men fit, had an in interest in that, um, fit for war, um, or um, equally just to get people to come together because these these events had been communal events and opportunities for hospitality and for the fo the poor to mix with the gentry as well. Um, we're not sure why he decided to um, start these games, but he. Um, decided to um, have, make an annual event, um, which he called his Olympics, the Cotswold Olympics, uh, where they would have all sorts of sports, um, wrestling, um, the throwing of the sledge, which is like you know, sledgehammer, throwing the hammer, um, running, horse racing, um, all sorts of things. Um, but it was like an Olympic Games in the sense that you know, people did par participate in a variety of games, it was organised and it was an annual event. And they had people playing in, in, in I think, it, I, I'm not 100% sure, but in Grecian sort of style robes, playing harp and so on. Um, and at the end of the games too, there'll be a big firework display. So they had their own sort of closing ceremony. For right. So you, you've alluded to the, to the contentious nature of sport already. So um, we need to get onto this. So, how, how, did, how did sport become a matter of contention in the, in the 17th century? That's a very good question. Really, the answer is in two parts. It's partly because of religion and partly because of concerns over order and, and, and disorder. Um, as far as that is concerned, the latter, um, during the 16th century particularly, uh, well, the latter part of the 16th century, early part of the 17th century, there was a lot of uh, poverty. In the 1590s were a, a very troubled decade. The economy was suffering, was high unemployment, um, and people were very concerned about um, the poor and vagrancy. And of course, there was a very different attitude to the poor then. Uh, in that they were in some, uh, 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 they were at fault somehow. It's because they were lazy and so on. And people were very worried. The authorities, um, JPs, the gentry, were very worried about people being idle. And um, so that was one thing. Uh, the other was that actually many of these uh, occasions of sport, when people did get together, they would brew ale and so on. And um, there would be a lot of drinking and often things would get out of hand. So they, they, they were right to be concerned in some cases in terms of disorder. Quite often at wakes and ales when these sports and recreations would be um, enjoyed, uh, fighting would break out and you could get fatalities and, and so on. Um, so there was a concern about that, an arising concern uh, about um, social order and what to do with people, um, what people would do in their free time. Um, but added to that, during the late 16th century, you've got the emergence of Puritanism. Um, so these people in the, in the Church of England, but who um, were radical Protestants and wanted to change both the church that so became more, more Protestant as far as they um, were concerned, but also society. Um, and as part of that, um, they wanted Sunday, the Lord's Day, to be devoted entirely to God, so that uh, people not only attend church, but after church, rather than indulge in the sports and recreations that they would traditionally enjoy after church, they should spend the day um, 
uh, uh, praying, uh, reading the Bible, visiting the sick and, and so on. And so there's a, there was a clash of ideologies. People who had enjoyed their, traditionally enjoyed their sports on Sunday were now uh, faced with attempts to suppress them by JPs who are concerned about uh, issues of social order and by Puritans, either Puritan ministers, in some cases Puritan JPs, who wanted to suppress them because they wanted them to make them um, devote the day entirely to God. And, and into that debate, surprisingly, Wade's monarchy. Yeah. Why? How? Um, Elizabeth I, who was the monarch really, um, she, she was on the throne when, when Puritans re really began to emerge and Puritanism uh, for the mainstream church and church hierarchy began to become a real problem. Elizabeth I um, herself enjoyed traditional um, sports and um, she herself thing, uh, she danced in May games. She'd even allowed wrestling once in the Royal Chapel. Um, so it's quite clear what she thought about sports and it was also clear what she thought about the Puritans. But she wisely um, decided that she wouldn't make any formal declaration about it. When James I came to the throne, um, he came from Scotland where he'd been king for many years um, and, he, and he, he had a very troubled upbringing in many ways and um, at one point he was um, kidnapped and he was under the control of certain Scottish nobles who were themselves very radically Protestant and, and stopped sports and, and, and uh, dances and so on. So he had that sort of background and he certainly had no love of the Puritans. And I think um, as his reign went on, he saw the Puritans as a greater threat um, than, than Catholicism, which of course was the other um, potential threat to the mainstream Church of England. Um, and when he was passing through Lancashire on his way back from a visit to Scotland, he was petitioned by some um, ordinary men and women from Lancashire who, whose um, so sports were being suppressed. The, there were Puritan JPs, magistrates, who had issued an order banning the playing of sports and, uh, and recreations on Sunday. So they stopped the king, petitioned him, and um, he then issued a declaration uh, in which he made it clear that they did have the license to play certain sports after church on Sundays. Provided they'd been to church first, they could um, take part in, in various um, activities. Um, and I think he did that uh, partly in answer to their petition, but also as an opportunity to put the Puritans back in their place, because I think he was getting increasingly frustrated by Puritan attempts to um, speak out on how the church sh should be run when he was head of the church. But I mean, presumably this was a um, that was a, a populist policy. You know, that's that's the equivalent of George Osborne not putting uh, more tax on petrol. That's, that's something that, that, that the Absolutely. common man would think, yes, I Absolutely, agree. and in many parts of the country, that was, it was greeted as such. Mm. I mean, initially he published it just for Lancashire. Lancashire was the most Catholic county. It had more uh, Catholics concentrated in Lancashire than anywhere else. Um, and one of the reasons he gave for issuing the declaration was that he was worried that if, if Catholics were stopped from playing sports on Sundays, they might associate, associate that with the Church of England. And see, uh, and therefore it would, it would make it more like, less likely for them to uh, convert. Um, but the following year, he issued it for the whole country, and it was greeted in many places um, uh, very warmly because um, they thought, at last, now we've we, we've got license to continue the sports that we want to. We can put the we can put the Puritan JPs back in their place. Um, however, uh, many others. Obviously, if they were uh, if they were Puritan, but many others as well were concerned about the license that seemed to be given to 
uh, debauchery or drunkenness on, on the Lord's Day. Because I think by the time James issued his declaration, things the debate had slightly moved on. And in some ways, I think the Puritans had not won the argument, but persuaded a greater proportion of the English people that, that um, the church wasn't Protestant enough. So there were many people who weren't Puritans, but who were still troubled by um, the license given um, to playing sports and drinking and so on on, on Sunday. But, but James, uh, quite prudently, when he realised that there was a degree of opposition in certain quarters, including from his own Archbishop, because Archbishop George Abbott, whilst not a Puritan, um, had some um, Puritan sympathies, and certainly he wasn't sort of high church. And he himself didn't like the idea of the Book of Sports, which is what James's declaration became known as, um, being read out from the pulpit. And the idea was that it would be published, it would be published from the pulpit. And when James realised that there was some opposition to that, he decided, in fact, just to turn a blind eye. So he made his declaration, he made his statement, but he didn't then enforce it. Um, and that changed um, under Charles I, because his son, Charles I, was a very, very different uh, man, a different person, and he, he wanted to have such things enforced. Just backtracking a little bit, you've, we're talking about England fairly specifically yeah. here, but you've, you've mentioned Scotland and the fact that James obviously came from Scotland, mm. um, Charles I was born in Scotland. Mm. Um, the, was the, was the situation completely different in Scotland, was, was, or was, were the same debates being had? The same, same debates were being had, but I think to a large extent the debate in, uh, of those in favour of recreation and dancing and so on had been lost in Scotland because the Scottish Church was much more radical. Um, and James, I mean there was an instance where the um, uh, local authorities in Edinburgh tried to ban some minstrels from playing on, on a Sunday. Um, in, in Edinburgh and the king intervened because he, uh, they were actually minstrels who had come from England and um, the king intervened because he wanted to allow them to play and he didn't want the Kirk telling him what to do. Um, but most people in Scotland were far more radically Protestant and uh, I think that Puritan Sabbatarianism, this idea that Sunday should be devoted entirely to God, had taken hold much, uh, uh, much more readily in, in Scotland and was much more widespread. So. Um, but that was the background that James um, had, if that makes sense. Sure. And presumably the situation in Wales was broadly similar to England, given the yes. political ties. Well, in, in fact, Wales, places like Wales and Cornwall, I mean, the southwest of England, um, that's where, um, in many cases, these traditional, you know, the wakes and ales, these traditional festivities had remained very popular. Um, it, was, it was really in the parts of the country where Protestantism had, t had deeper roots and where Puritanism was beginning to take hold, so the southeast of England, London, and so on. Uh, that's where um, traditional uh, Sunday recreations were already being suppressed. But in places like Wales, the north of England, where you still had a lot of Catholics, and the southwest, uh, that's where you still had uh, much more of this traditional festivity. And, that, uh, and it's in those parts of the countries where, where the Book of Sports was welcomed. Mm. And across the water in Ireland, is, is, that, is that a completely different situation? Um, I think, well, I think that, I mean, obviously that was still largely Catholic. I mean, you, you had uh, in the northern part of uh, Ireland, of course, there'd, there'd been uh, the plantations. You did have uh, Protestants there, and a lot of them had come over from Scotland. So those radical Protestants would have shared the same views as their English Puritan counterparts or the Scottish Presbyterians. But uh, in the vast bulk of Ireland, it, it was still Catholic, and so they would, they would be wedded to, still to their traditional culture and festivities. All these areas, all these countries were engulfed in war uh, in the middle of the 17th century. Yeah. And how far 
was sport in any way involved in that? Um, it seems like a silly question to ask. No, I don't think it's a silly question to ask at all. I mean, I think fundamentally the English Civil War, uh, which remains the worst conflict our country's ever experienced. And I think people forget that because we obviously we don't have any film footage, we don't have any sort of grandparents or great-grandparents uh, who lived through something like the First World War or the Second World War. Um, it's very easy to lose sight of the fact that the English Civil War was a terrible conflict. I and mean, when you think that, I think it's 0.6% of the population died in the Second World War, 1.6% in the uh, First World War, um, in the English Civil War it's 3.6%, so a much higher proportion, obviously a numerically much smaller number because the population was um, tiny compared, but had a huge impact. Um, and that war had a number of causes, obviously there were political causes, religion was played a, a big part, but I think that, that um, cultural and, uh, issues and, and um, festivity and different attitudes to sports did play their part. Um, I think the king came to be seen by royalists not only as defending the established church, but many of them also defending their traditional way of life. Um, many of them in different parts of the country had already experienced Puritan magistrates, Puritan ministers trying to suppress their traditional way of life. And they knew full well that if uh, Parliament, the, uh, Parliament under the control of, of the likes of Pym and so on, the Puritans, um, won the war, then that would be under attack as never before, as it proved, because obviously they did lose the war and uh, Cromwell's government did suppress sports. They bec it became illegal to have uh, play sports on Sundays during the entire period of the Republic. Um, and there's lots of evidence that um, to suggest that people uh, recognise that. I'm not suggesting for a moment that that was the motivation for everyone, or indeed the majority, but for some, certainly I think it was. And there's evidence from uh, parliamentary propaganda uh, at the time where um, they specifically say in, in some uh, things like Mercurius Britannicus where they say that the people who make up the king's army are the pe people who um, uh, uh, practice debauchery or, or, or May games and so on on Sundays who went to wakes and ales. Um, so they identify them as joining the king's army. Um, and whilst there are a few examples of um, some people who uh, supported, the, supported the suppression of, of sports, um, who then nonetheless fought for the king. Um, and there are examples of some people who indulged in sports on Sunday who, who fought with Parliament. They're very much the exception. Um, the vast majority of people who um, came out in support of festivity and so on were royalist. Mm. And am I right in remembering that it was Charles I reissued the book of sports uh, and, and sort of inflamed passions in so doing? Absolutely. Um, in 1633, Charles um, issued um, a slightly amended version of his father's declaration. Uh, but Charles's book of sports was different in the sense that he uh, was determined to have it enforced. So he insisted that it should be read out from each every pulpit in every parish. And that in the, in the face of really considerable opposition. Um, and a number of ministers in different parts of the country were suspended or lost their livings for, for not doing so, for refusing to do so. Um, but he did that at the time when there was no parliament. He did that during his personal rule. From, so from 1629 to 1640, he was ruling without a, a parliament. Um, and although people did, some brave people did speak out against the book of sports, there was very little overt opposition to it other than a number of ministers refusing to, to read it because it was against their conscience to do so. 
Um, but when he was forced to call a parliament again in 1640 um, to, to uh, raise an army to tackle with the rebellion in Scotland, um, MPs then seize their opportunity, the first opportunity they'd had since its publication some years before, to speak out against it. And so it's quite clear that um, it, it, it wasn't an issue that had gone away. Um, and during the short parliament and then again the long parliament, um, the issue of recreations on Sunday, May games, the use of maypoles and so on, came up again and again. Um, and uh, parliament then uh, issued uh, ordinances banning the use of maypoles, banning uh, Sunday recreations. It did become an issue where people were very clear about where Parliament stood and where the, where the King stood. Sure. So, uh, in, in, in some ways, it, it's, a, it's a very useful window into society in that first half of the 17th century then. It, 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 it opens us up to all these themes that you, you've just outlined. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it involves, it involves national politics, it involves local politics as well, as in the case in Lancashire, and there was a similar instance with Charles Dan in Somerset. But it, it absolutely does, because it, it touches on uh, questions of order and disorder. It touches on, uh, obviously, who had control of the church um, and people's traditional way of life, which was certainly... They were right to see it as under attack, and it was under attack. And that fed into the tensions and the divisions um, that uh, ended up in the English Civil War. Um, because Charles's England was a very divided society, and the confrontation and clashes over uh, what people did with their free time on Sundays uh, was, was a very important part of that. And, and his publication of the Book of Sports and the reaction to it only served to increase those, those divisions. How does the story end? With, after, after the Civil War, uh, and the Restoration, Charles II coming coming back, uh, do does the situa situation normalise somewhat, and people start playing sports again, and the debate sort yeah. of dissolve? Absolutely. Um, I think um, things were slightly different in the sense that um, in the medieval and um, medieval period and then during the 16th century and to a lesser extent perhaps but some extent the early 17th century um, ales and wakes had been used to raise money um, by the time of Charles II's restoration um, parishes uh, you know you had the parish they were relying more on the parish rates and so on so you don't find ales and wakes being revived in every part of the country but they are revived Charles II himself, of course, was restored in May, and so um, May games, which had been so popular before um, the Civil War in, in, in many parts of the country, were once again revived and very much linked now to the monarchy and to Charles II. And indeed, they used a, they had a maypole in, and, and Morris dancing in the procession through London when he when he came back and was restored to to the crown. Um, and the Cotswold Olympics, for example, Robert Dover's Olympics, which had been suppressed in 1643 when the, the Civil War was well underway, um, they were then revived. We're not exactly sure whether it was 1660, 61 or 62, but shortly after the Restoration, the Cotswold Olympics were themselves revived. Sadly for Robert Dover, he died in 1652, so he didn't see... He didn't live to see them revived. Um, but very much in parts of the country, um, you saw a revival of, of sports on Sunday. And really the debate was over until really the 19th century when Sabbatarianism became an issue again and, um, and the likes of Eric Little running in, in, on a Sunday and, and, and so on. It, it, it became an issue again with the, with the Victorians about how Sundays should be observed. Um, but from the Restoration to the 19th century, um, in part, those parts of the country where traditional festivities were still valued. Uh, they were, were revived in one form or other.
That was Alistair Dougal. Alistair teaches history at the Godolphin School in Salisbury. You can read a feature by him on sport and the civil wars in our July issue. And indeed, if the civil wars are your thing, then the main feature in the July edition is an examination of the key events in the 17th century conflict as chosen by Blair Warden, John Adamson and Michal Oshakru. Well, that's about it for this episode. Next week, we'll be chatting about suffragettes and medieval travellers. So do please join us for that. In the meantime, please keep an eye on our website, historyextra.com, for blogs, quizzes, galleries and more. And don't forget you can find our Kindle edition and iPad editions on the Amazon website and Apple newsstand respectively. The History Extra weekly podcast is recorded in Bristol and produced by Dave Gibson. collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.